Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. Movie Beat, conversations with filmmakers where we discuss everything film and television. Here on Movie Beat, you'll learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and TV. And we will talk to everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera, and they'll provide you with the guests and the information you're going to want to have, whether you're a filmmaker or a fan. And so now let's move behind the scenes here at Movie Beat. First, my, I want to tell you my guest today is Mr. Jeffrey Winner. Jeffrey's been a friend for many, many years, and he's also co-star in the cult film classic Massacre at Central High, and we're going to talk about that today. There's so many Massacre fans all around the world. They always want more info, and, and uh, fortunately, we've been able to talk to uh, Daryl Morey a little bit about that. He's, he stars in the movie as David. Uh, we'll talk to Jeffrey, and there's others coming along. So, uh, so stay tuned. We're going to have a great show. And then also, the chat room is open. We are live. And when you listen live, you get the advantage of being in the chat room. Uh, all shows are archived at RexSykes.com. That's the official website of RexSykes Movie Beat. I'm your host, Rex Sykes. It's R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S.com. And all of these shows are archived right there at the Interviews blog. That means there's lots of great shows that you probably haven't even heard. There's lots of really great recent shows that you should go back and listen to. They're also available as podcasts from iTunes, but go and listen to the shows uh, and share them with your friends. Now, Movie Beat is really designed to be a resource for you. That's why I connect you up with professionals who are making it happen. And they give the farm away. I mean, they give you secrets, tips, suggestions, advice, how-tos, what to do, what not to do, to make your projects faster, easier, less expensively, to get them to market, to get them to an audience, how to PR them. I mean, we've got directors, screenwriters, actors. Uh, we've got sound designers. We've got casting directors, uh, producers, you know, agents, managers, all sorts of people uh, to help you with your career, so be sure to take advantage and listen to these programs. All we ask in return, all we ask in return, is for you to share them with your friends and with your industry contacts and connections. Let other people know about the show, like right now, reach out live, call somebody, uh, wave at them, go come on over and listen to this, email them, tweet them, Facebook them, uh, and, and invite them to listen to the show, either live or archived. Share the show. Post these URLs anywhere and everywhere where you think filmmakers worldwide will uh, pay attention, find out, and come to the show. Then also, leave comments during the show. Leave them on Twitter. Leave them at the player. Leave them right there at the Blog Talk player. There's a window right underneath the player. It's a comment window. If you can't see it now, it'll be there when the player closes. But leave comments. That helps extend our reach to other people. It increases our, our presence on Google and on the Internet. So when you leave comments uh, during the show, after the show, if you leave them on Facebook, if you leave them on Twitter, if you leave them right there at the player, that helps us out a great deal. Also, when you get the podcast, rate and review the shows right there at the iTunes store. That helps us out immensely, and we certainly hope that you will do that in exchange for all this valuable free information you're getting 
each and every day. There's over 285 hours of programming to help you with your career. All right, enough said. Uh, I want to bring on my guest, Jeffrey Winner. Let me tell you a little bit about Jeffrey. Jeffrey Winner's an actor. He began his career over 40 years ago, and prior to that, he had trained for two years with the faculty and staff of the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, headed by England's noted director, John Fernald. He spent uh, his early years working in New York, as well as various regional theaters throughout the country. He toured for a year with the original National Company of Godspell in the early 70s, which ended his run at the Greek Theater in Los Angeles. He called uh, Los Angeles his home ever since, but he continues to work in New York and elsewhere. Jeffrey has uh, been in many films and television productions, opposite the likes of Donald Sutherland, Brandon Frazier, Fran Drescher, Jack Klugman, Eric Roberts, among others. Hill's film credits include Forrest Gump, opposite Tom Hanks and Robin White, and the cult film classic Massacre at Central High. He's had reoccurring roles in soaps such as Port Charles and General Hospitals, among other things. So uh, help me in welcoming Mr. Jeffrey Winner to the show. Jeffrey, are you there? I am here. How are you, Rex? I'm good. It's good to hear from you and to be with you again. Um, I should tell the audience that uh, you know we've known each other since Massacre at Central High. We lost touch for a few years. We're now re- or for many years, but we reconnected. And I had the I had the great pleasure of seeing Jeff in November, as well as uh, uh, spending time with Jeff uh, recently, a couple weeks ago, out on a very nice warm veranda up at Sunset Boulevard, sipping coffee and listening to Jeff. Uh, and well, or and we discuss movies. So um, uh, that's pleasure right. To have, pleasure to have that's you. That's right. And and uh, thank goodness for Facebook because this wouldn't be happening right now. Uh, yeah, indeed. I, rem- I, mean, I, I remember we we shot the film in February of 1976. It was released in October of that year, and we were in touch then. We went to to see the show and uh, the first screening that night. And Tom Logan and a bunch of us were. Were with us, and then uh, everybody went their separate ways. And I really haven't talked to you until I think it was about eleven months ago when I joined Facebook and I reconnected with you and Daryl Mari. And uh, so I'm very thankful for that. Yeah, it's amazing because I've been trying to track Jeff down all these years and, and find out what happened to him and uh, and maintain contact. And, and it was it was hard finding. I got to admit, um, I. Probably should have done the smart thing and gone to the Screen Actors Guild and asked, you know, and, and contact me, which, I, which you know, for some reason, I mean, I, you know, it just escaped my head. But uh, we did party at your house in West Hollywood. You had a That's party right. over That's there right. on Huntley Avenue and different things. Some sometime after Massacre, I don't think, I don't think it was an immediate dropping off. No, but, it wasn't. But, it, it, there, there was a, there were a few months there where we were hanging out. I know it was mainly uh, uh, the two of us and, and Tom Logan. And right. you do remember you were over at my house. That's correct. And we went to some parties, and uh, it was sort of a, a slow fading out. But I'm glad that uh, we're back in touch. Me too. And the, and the and the fascinating thing about Jeff is that you've got a much better memory about all of these things than I do. Well, <laughs> you do. You do. You you've got greater detail. Great. You'll say, "Oh, we did this and that," and I'm like, "Really? Okay, cool." <laughs> right. So, but, you, so, but you, you, you did remember you did remember Tom's friend Kelly. I did I didn't know I re- forgot her name. So you, you really got. You me remember there. Kelly, you know, and I and I was driving around Los Angeles, going, I think that that used, that, that park used to be where the apartment building is. Oh, uh, they had yeah. a they had an, an apartment over on Laurel Canyon in Moore Park. Then I believe now it's just a park at that corner. 
And it's so funny. Oh, no, 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 so I take that back. It was Laurel Canyon and Magnolia. I take it back. I take that oh, back. Oh. It might still be there. It's, it could still be there. Okay. And, and I do part. remember, for me anyway, I remember where it all started, and that was when my first audition for Massacre at Central High was at the uh, the production offices on Sunset Boulevard. I was going to ask you to get into that in a second, because as the listeners may or may not know, uh, the rest of us had all been cast, and Jeffrey had what Tom and I and others thought, and Daryl all thought was probably the most horrendous of auditions, the toughest the, for an actor to face. So go ahead, let's 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 discuss that. Okay. Okay. Was that your very first audition? I thought you were. I thought that was your call back, but that was your first. No, um, I had had two. Uh, auditions prior to that. The initial audition where he had me read, I forget what it was, role. I think it was maybe uh, um, Harvey or, or someone like that. He had me mm-hmm. read for a particular role. And of course, as we know later, uh, uh, Oscar is a, is a mute and right. doesn't really uh, have lines. So in order to establish uh, what I could do, Renee had me read for several roles. Then he called me back. And this is what was interesting. He had me go through all of these improvisational uh, physical uh, events. He said, pretend like you're climbing a rope. Well, there I was you know, in the middle of his living room, climbing a rope. And, pretend like you're you're being attacked and people are whipping you with your their towels. I mean, all of the things, of course, that ended up in the film. And then at the end of it, he said, okay, um, lift up your shirt. And I went, Oh, okay. So I lifted up my shirt. He went, oh, "You're skinnier than I am." So you got to realize that I I, I wasn't uh, heavy at that point, and right. he just wanted to see you know, you know, what I looked like. So that's why I was actually the last person cast in the film. While all of you guys were having your opening party, next, right, right, in the next room at the production company, he he called me back. And I was there with another actor who was quite heavy, and he came out of the party, looked at the two of us, looked at this other actor, and went, no, I'm sorry, you uh, you look too old. Uh, I'm sorry. He left. And then, quite frankly, he turned to me and went, I didn't think he looked too old. I just liked you better. He says, I need you to be fat. The character I want you to play is, is Oscar. He's got to be fat. I said, well, uh, I could try and gain some weight. Uh, uh, how long do I have? He says, I need you uh, in two weeks on the set. I said, I could probably give you about 20 pounds. He said, good, do that. He said, if for some reason you can't gain the weight, uh, I'll just reconceive the role. So, uh, yeah, I had two weeks, and... My wife at the time was cooking one starchy dish after another, you know, mashed potatoes with gravy, whatnot. Plus, I was drinking three tumblers of weight-gaining powder that you mix with juice or milk or whatever. Each one of these glasses was 2,300 calories. Well, yeah. And I was drinking three a day. And it got to the point, actually, people thought, oh, wow, that's a lot of fun. You must have had a great time. I said, no, actually, it wasn't because I'd wake up in the middle of the night with stomach pains. Oh, yeah. Trying, trying to g- gain the weight, and my stomach was being stretched out. So I was able to gain just under 25 pounds. It was like 23, 24 pounds. 
and showed up first day at the high school where we were shooting. And Renee comes out, looks at me, and goes, you're very professional. <laughs> so I knew <laughs> that I had gained enough, certainly, to do the film. Wow. Wow. That is uh, – it was amazing. And when we were sitting in the other room, and we remember that the couple of actors went in, and we would go across the table and go, God, how terrible that is. I mean, we're all cast, and, and these two guys got to come in, and uh, and then you know one comes out, and then, then uh, Renee Dolder, the director of the movie, that came out and said, "Meet your Oscar or whatever." I forget. That's exactly right. How. I remember he introduced me to the of you. That was great. And yep. uh, and uh, so that was very cool. Um, can you say who the other actor was that didn't get the role? Should I? Yeah. Why not? Well, because he, he's certainly gone on to do a lot of stuff. Uh, uh, that was uh, Stephen Firth. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's so, done many, uh, many things. Yeah, and, and and had much success, so that's very cool. Um, but uh, we this was a production office that was on Sunset Boulevard, as I recall. Correct. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, Somewhere between La Brea and Gardner or something. Correct. Exactly. You know, very close to where I was living at the time on Huntley. It wasn't that far. Now, um, so then, uh, this was our meet and greet, as I recall, where we all got together and got to know each other. Now, I know that did did you go with us? I know that Andrew and Tom. Some of us went to like House of Pies or something. I remember we, we there were a couple dinners before the movies where we kind of hung out. And um, I remember Andrew brought me my first shot of Cavassier. Oh wow! And I and I drank it like a shot. And he was, you know, just horrid, you know, horrified. Like you can't do that. You you must sip it. And I'm like, you know, I don't really like sipping, you know, whiskey and brandy and booze and stuff like that. You know, I just didn't get it over with. Now, when was this exactly? Was this after we wrapped? No, I, this was somewhere before. I think before we actually shot. Oh, before. You know, and yeah, I think I think I, I, as I recall, we went out somewhere, and then I know we spent more time during the shooting. You know, with a couple of meals and things like that, where where some of the cast would get together and go out. But I thought I, that we. I, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Well, no, I think you're right because, as I recall. The film had a four-week shooting schedule. Yeah. I shot in the middle of it. I remember I shot for three weeks, I think. But again, the film, maybe it was a little longer, maybe it was five weeks. But I remember the film had been shooting uh, for a couple of weeks they, they, prior well, to they, my entrance. Oh, really? I, well, I know they shot one week. Um, they shot some of the beach footage, and they shot, I think, some of the hang gliding stuff, mm-hmm. and and they did some of that, and then they then they went principal on, you know, us at the school or us in the on the parking lot or at the grass or wherever we were, in, right, in the different areas. So they, but they did. They, I think, I think Daryl worked that first week, and probably not many other people, if I if I remember right. We'd have to check that with Daryl or with right. I, I I remember, however, that my first day. At the school on location, uh, the film had already started. It was up and running. Right, it had been, and uh, we were shooting at Cabrini, correct, out in Burbank. Is that yes, the, yeah, correct? It was mm-hmm. a condemned Catholic school. What my understanding was, 
that it was the high school that Disney owned where all of the kids and the children of, of workers went to high school. It was owned by Disney, oh. and it was for the employees' children. Oh, okay. And what happened was it was condemned in that first you big quake. 71, was it? Yeah. yeah. And it, what's interesting is what made it such a great choice for the film is you walk in, and you're in the middle of a high school, no question about it, down to the tiniest detail. But it was deserted, and it was very interesting because if you walked around, particularly outside, and looked very carefully around uh, the foundation, there were these huge cracks, which obviously was from the earthquake and led it to being uh, uh, condemned. But that was the only giveaway were these huge cracks from the 71 quake. What I think is amazing is that uh, Massacre Central Eye has the cafeteria scene outside, which is (laughs) so... True to life in many of the California schools, they do have Absolutely. outdoor, you know, seating. Um, unlike, you know, if you live in the Midwest where it snows ninety percent of your year, uh, people eat inside in, in actual rooms. Uh, Absolutely. If you go to Beverly Hills High School, you go up on the third floor. It's it's all outside. It's where the cafeteria is, where they have the vending machines. It's so true. So we did a, a food fight, and uh, as, as I recall, you come in and do you don't you mash Logan or somebody with a meatball or something up front, or how does how does the whole thing start? Uh, it's been a while since I've seen the film. Uh, somebody does something, and I'm all I, I can all remember. I, no, you all laugh. I remember you laugh. Well, I, here's what I remember. I'd have to watch the scene again. Is I was provoked when Tom Logan playing Harvey takes his tray and just dumps it in my lap. And I jump up from the table, uh, furious, and then I take my plate of spaghetti and mash it in his face, which is what prompts me to to laugh. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And 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 then... Is that the first first time you utter a sound in the movie? uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, it was the the, the only time that I ever vocalized anything. We at the time, you know, as young actors, you go, God, this guy's got no lines, you know. I mean, you know, we all got lines. We're important actors. And yet, you had by far the more interesting part being being that you were mute, that, that your whole character is all based on, on not, you know, not delivering any line, but, but by your own, you know, characterization, your own, your own you know, behaviors. I mean, it was by it was, far... It was very, it was very interesting because... Uh, as people who uh, have seen the film and studied it know, every one of the kids in that school represented uh, a certain aspect of society, the oppressed, which I played, the haves, the have-nots, the stoners, uh, like Robert Carradine and and Rainbow and Lonnie played. So the whole idea behind my character was that I was so oppressed. By the time the film starts... Uh, he's been so bullied that he has withdrawn into a shell and just doesn't talk to anybody anymore. That was that was the key uh, from Renee's standpoint from his writing. And so you see me evolve like everyone else, but it's all physicalized rather than verbalized. Right. I change like everybody else in the film, but you never actually hear me say anything. Somebody somebody called me 
Oh, yeah, a friend of mine called me the other day. He saw Massacre Central. I watched it on, uh, you know, through the link on Facebook, and he said, it's amazing, it's amazing that, that until the, there are no parents in the movie. And I go, you know, people have talked about that for 30 or 40 years now, that there are no, you know, adults and everything. But I'm, I'm, I'm coming back around to, to – I don't want to address this at that point. What I'm trying to get back to is that Rene wrote this as this kind of political allegory where, right. as you said, each character represents a different aspect of – some society, uh, either the upper class or the the downtrodden, those who are being oppressed, and it really has to do with how um, you know people are repressed, and when they're removed, then they then you know whatever rises to the top are, are abusers and you know things like. That. But so it's interesting that you know that your character though. Um, is is withdrawn into himself and does not say anything. But when he emerges, he still doesn't really say anything. I mean, that's why the laugh is, I think, so significant. He, you you remain silent, but now have become a bully yourself. Right, right. That's that's the turning point, and you're correct. That that was the, the first and only time uh, that I ever uttered a sound. Very interesting. And also... Uh, you have to realize that uh, the whole film uh, was political and and historical. What what he was depicting in the film through uh, his screenplay was right. what happens today when you see you know, Egypt getting rid of Mubarak and suddenly the Muslim Brotherhood takes over. And it's just it it, it happens and it's happened for thousands of years where you get rid of the dictator or the bad guy and suddenly you have just as bad an element. And I think that was very, very clever, and I think that's what the critics picked up on. That's what they really like. People like Roger Ebert and Vincent Camby of the New York Times, they, they love that whole political allegory. Which which is, frankly, quite amazing. I mean, it did make the New York Times top 10 or 20 list, and Ebert the top, gave it the top, the, up. The, the top 20 list, yes. And, and, uh, and Go ahead. What's, what's interesting also, is the film was released in 1976. It came and went rather quickly in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And what started the whole ball rolling in terms of the cult status and the popularity around the world, uh, it began with Vincent Canby. He was walking home one night in New York, and he passed the Thalia Theater, which for decades was the great revival house. It's, it's not there anymore. And it was close to midnight. He's walking by, and there's this line down the block. And he looks up at the marquee, and it says, Massacre at Central High. Well, he was coming home, and just on the spur of the moment, he bought a ticket. And he went in to watch it and was so impressed with it that he wrote this glowing review. And that's how we ended up on his top 20 list. That is amazing. Uh, it truly is amazing, and it, it played a year in France. Right, that's a record. <laughs> which, which I had I had not heard. I mean, you know, the French love Jerry Lewis, and they play his movies all the time. But Massacre at Central I played for a year. Um, I, I don't know if it played at one theater continuously or if it was moving around, but the the fact that it had that life there is is quite amazing. Yeah, it, it you know we went to the opening, which was at the Pacific Theater in Hollywood. Right. And I know then it moved down the street to a, a triple bill theater. Where I mean, at that time they had triple features. It later became a porno house, but right. uh, it wasn't when when we were there. 
And um, subsequently, both those theaters have closed, sadly. Right. But uh, but uh, we all went opening night to see this this uh, movie that we made, and um, I don't remember who wasn't there. I'll, I'll tell you who was there from from what I remember. Uh, you, of course, mm-hmm. uh, myself, Tom Logan. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me see. Ray Lonnie Underwood. Ray Underwood. Ray Underwood, yeah. Um Lonnie mm-hmm. Rainbow. And I'm trying to and I'm trying to think of Andrew was there, I thought. Was Andrew there? Okay. I think so, yeah. Yeah. So that was Daryl had to be there. Daryl was not. He wasn't? No, Daryl wasn't with us that night. Hmm. Um but what's what's interesting is we watched the first show. And we were on a double bill with uh, John Carpenter's film Assault on Precinct 13. That's right. That's right. Forgot about that. That's true. And I know Austin Stoker, and, um, and who starred in that as the as the, the sheriff. Who was that? In, Austin Stoker. Oh, whoa, whoa. Started. And the guy. And the guy Darby. Oh my God. Darby was the boyfriend of of a woman friend of mine. We used to horseback ride all the time. He starred as the head gangster. He's he's now passed away. I can't think of his last name, but he was Colette's um, boyfriend at the time. We used to hang out together, and uh, a couple other people from from Assault on Precinct 13. Wow. And it was so interesting that night after the first showing, when the lights came up, because there was an intermission between the two films. (laughs) We were down toward the front, and all of us in a single file just marched up the aisle, and the look... Uh, uh, from all of the audience members, just they they looked at the screen, they looked back at us, and went, "What? Uh, what? Oh!" It was the entire, almost the entire cast in front of them. It was right. priceless to to look at their expressions. Yeah, those were the good old days when we were young and didn't know any better. And yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but but it's amazing because um, Renee, uh, I I remember when I watching the movie hating. The opening and the score and the song and the spoilers and everything, thinking this is the dumbest thing. Why would they do this? And Renee also, for many years, has hated it for that very reason. Right, right. And and Renee and I have talked about this at length, you know, about how he was upset and he had a different score in mind. And they didn't do it. And uh, and then he, I, I should let Renee, you know, hopefully, who's going to be on the show one of these days, um, uh, to talk about this, but he went and saw it in New York, and the fans came up and told him how much he liked it. And he said, "You know that Philly song." <laughs> he goes, "I hated it all these years, and now he goes, you know, these people, it's, it's, it's they're so endeared to it. It's like it would be a mistake to think of it as anything else, you know." And, well, what was and, interesting uh, when we had that reunion lunch right. uh, back in November, when when Renee was there and Daryl, he was very. Uh, uh, Blunt in his comments, he went to a screening in San Francisco. The place was completely sold out, and he spoke. And afterwards, uh, two fans walked up to him to tell him how much they admired the film. And he went, oh, I haven't seen this in 30-some years. I hated that score. I think it's terrible, da-da-da-da-da-da. And they both looked at him and said, look, man, you know, we really love the film. Okay, so uh, beyond that, 
we don't really care what your opinion is. <laughs> and Amazing. It was it was at that point that Renee and I remember he said this at the lunch. He said, "That's," he said, "when I realized that uh, I was being arrogant, mm-hmm. that I wasn't allowing the, the audience to love this film, which they do." So, ever since then, he's been very silent about his opinions. He, he doesn't uh, bring them up anymore. Yes, this is true. And and for the audience who who may or may not know Jeff and uh, Daryl and I and Renee and uh, Peter Dial, who Peter is now a producer and director. Uh, I saw him a lot this last time in Los Angeles. He was our makeup person on that movie. And uh, um, I hope to have Peter on the show sometime too uh, discussing it. But uh, there were those of us who were left. Uh, Andrew is is out of town. I haven't seen Bobby in a while. Um, Tom was on location shooting commercial, or he's a director. And then sadly, uh, Ray Underwood and Rainbow and Lonnie and uh, Damon Lonnie O'Grady and and uh, Damon Douglas have passed away. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so we got together those people we could get together, and we met in Hollywood for the first time in 35 years. Amazing. Uh, assembled, yeah. So that was that was very cool. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me more. What do you what do you remember about the shoot and uh, um, about the movie in general? I, I do know that it became very popular as a, uh, when it came out on DVD. I mean, sorry, on, on videotape. Uh, I went somewhere. And they said, oh, this is the number one rented video. Uh, everybody's renting Massacre at Central High. Really? Played, yeah, yeah, I was really impressed. I, it, it, because, because it had Massacre in the title, everybody apparently was renting it for Friday and Saturday late night shows in their homes. And, uh, and then, of course, it went on and it played on you know, TBS and TNT and HBO and Cinemax and USA. I mean, it, yeah. it played forever on TV up until... Um, I'm not sure. I know that Columbine came along, and that was one of the things that uh, um, sadly had an effect on the the later television run of it. But uh, but it played forever, and then it, it, it seemed to kind of uh, disappear. Where fans, you know, constantly asking, "How do I get it? Where can I see it?" You know. Yeah, I, I could see where people would rent the film for late night weekend showings because of the title and I I find it very interesting when you go online where you can see the film and you read comments such as well I mean we we never saw any cops we never saw any fire trucks we never saw any parents and and I remember telling Renee at the time in November I said people who say that didn't understand the film (laughs) you know so they were thinking they were they were going to get something that was actually bloodier and more violent uh, than it is. It's really just as cerebral as it is violent. Well, I think an interesting thing about this, the comment on the film business is that one of the, is it the German version that, that is out on DVD or, or right, VHS right. or something, where it has Daryl or David, the character David, holding an axe above his head. Right, right. Yeah, that's and, the German. That's the German version. Right, and and there is no axe in the movie. I mean, just to do anything to sell a a, a movie, they put cover art on there. It has nothing to do with what's going on inside the picture. I know, I know, and and it's very interesting. Um, 
as we've talked about, the bullies representing dictators and and the school essentially representing a country or a kingdom. Uh, it influenced a lot of uh, future filmmakers. Uh, Heather's was actually a film yeah. that came out of, of of massacre inspiring the filmmaker. Oh, very much so. I mean, to the point where the end is an entire. You could, some people call it a ripoff, others call it an homage to uh, to a massacre. Oh, I, I went to see it, and I was just giggling and chuckling all the way through it, particularly the ending. And I remember people look at me like, why do you find this funny? Well, they didn't know, obviously. I was looking at it from a whole other level. Yeah, it, when I saw Heather's, I think I saw it first on cable, and I was just, I was shocked. I was like, wow, they just completely stole this. Yep. Movie. And um, and then later I had read that they that there was, you know, an homage aspect to it. So I was it, like, wow. it really was. It really was a, a, a respectful tip of the hat. He he meant uh, it to be that way. Now, I um one of the things that I remember was your death scene in Massacre Central High. I'm and, so glad uh, you brought that up because I was going to segue into it, but go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, I I remember two things. One is, at the time, Tom and I were supposed to be in this scene. And uh, we didn't have any lines, but but Renee had wanted us in there. And wardrobe put us in the wrong wardrobe. So, you know, we had gone off, we got changed, and we came back. And and they are like, no, that's not right. That's not right. Go, okay, we'll go without them. And we were a little pissed. So, you know, we're standing back by camera, you know, in the wrong wardrobe. And we had been kind of dating or kind of hanging out with or whatever you want to call it, a couple of girls who were extras on the scene. And now they were, one or both of them were going to walk through. And we had done a a previous take or rehearsal that didn't go at all. I mean, for people who don't know, and I'm I'm going to let you finish, but um, they had built a fake part of a wall and behind it they had uh, uh, for lockers and they had... uh, um, a gas in a tank that was filling up that would ignite and explode and and um, and you would walk up to the locker and then open it and they would cut and the stuntman would come in and all this kind of stuff and the first one just merely popped and didn't do anything so they reset and during right. all the time that they were resetting you would hear <laughs> going on and on and on and on and on anyway so I'm done you tilt take over and Well, it it gets back to what I was saying uh, at the beginning. I I walked on uh, to the high school grounds my very first day, and my very first scene was the death scene. Oh, was it? Yes. I didn't realize that. We're we're, we're talking film magic, (laughs) out of context, (laughs) a really, really... (laughs) Definite form of out of context. Uh, yes, I uh, I remember we um, we rehearsed it, and I remember I come around a corner and they had an extra short girl carrying books, and I slam her into her lockers, uh-huh. and I walk up and I reach for the handle, and they inserted a, a close up of of my hand pulling up on the handle, and that's of course when they cut, and it was Danny was I my stand in. Danny, uh, the stunt name was Danny Rogers. Yeah. Rogers, that's right. And Danny uh, was hooked up to a wire. The idea mm-hmm. being that when he pulled the handle, and the explosion happened, 
that the wire would fling them across to the opposite wall. Uh, something you don't really see in the movie because – this gets back to what you were talking about, the hissing that you were hearing. Uh, they pumped up the kegs uh, to such a degree that when they exploded them, uh, it completely filled the corridor, knocked the camera over. Danny was laying on the floor. We couldn't see. There were no lights. Everything was was He's not was the light that it filled it with smoke, yeah. All around, and when they when it, when they finally found Danny lying on the ground, he just looked up and said, "Oh, well, I did I didn't hear a cut, so I didn't I didn't want to do anything, you know." So we thought he was injured, but yeah, it was a huge explosion, and you see that in the film. It just goes boom. Yeah, and it goes it goes right to black because that's exactly what we did. And then Tom and I are running through the smoke trying to find the girls, thinking, "Oh my God, they've been killed," and. Uh, you know, I mean, it was just—it was amazing. Danny said all he saw was a ball of flame coming at him, and it had had it not been for the belt pulling him out, uh, you know, he would he would have taken it all in the face. And, right. Uh, and I think his eyebrows had been singed and stuff, but he was okay. He hadn't been burned. He may have been knocked out briefly, you right. know, but uh, but it was just momentary. Exactly. Uh, but it was it was it was a pretty. I, I don't I, see that's interesting. It was your first day. I don't remember where in the sequence of shooting. I don't remember my first day. I don't. I, oh, I do remember my first day. It was in Pomona, I think, if, or wherever the college, West Covina or Pomona. Yeah, Pomona they, yes, uh huh. Yeah, the, the, it's the Pomona College. Daryl and I were out there, and uh, uh, they were doing the exits from the classroom uh, rape scene or the attempted rape scene. They were doing the exits of those out. Everything from the exterior of the school, mm-hmm. and so uh, I was seen where we've left the parking lot and we walk up the steps, and Daryl pats me on the back as we go in, you know, kind of thing. And so that was my first day of shooting. Um, wow! At the college, yeah. Well, you you and, can understand why I remember my first day. <laughs> yeah, I do remember. I do understand. And it was so funny is, and I had mentioned this to Renee at the reunion lunch. Uh, we they went for my close-up and makeup, and and you know Peter did what he felt he had to do, and and it was certainly a realistic approach. Uh, my face was covered in blood. I mean, it was just oozing. There was a puddle that I was mm-hmm. laying in. And they had me all finished, ready to go, and Renee walks up and goes, "No, no, 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 no! It's too much blood. I know. I, I, I get rid of it." He said, he said something very interesting. He said, "I don't want the audience looking at blood. I want the audience to be looking at his eyes." Ah. So I had to go back, get completely cleaned up, and they did it all over again. And it's interesting when you see the close-up. The first thing you do is, boom, you go to the character's eyes. Right, and right. of course, I've, I've had people say, "Well, you know, with an explosion that big, I mean, your head would have come off. There'd been all kinds right. of blood." Exa- One more example of symbolism: what he was going for. He wasn't going for absolute reality, even even if the scene called for it. You know, um, he has been misunderstood in so many ways. Not only do people think he's a girl because his name is Renee. Um, right. You know, they'll say, "Oh, Miss Dolder directed this movie," or things like that. When in well, fact, well, because uh, because it's been misspelled with two e's instead of the one. Right. I think I've even misspelled it with two e's because it's yeah, been so, so have I because I look at the poster or whatever and I think, right. "Oh." Right. And 
but uh, you know, and, and the funny thing is that this all came about as a result of um, people behind the scenes, but some of the producers saying, you know, we need a movie. Uh, you know, we want a relatively small cast, but it should have eight to ten deaths in it. <laughs> they wanted to make this exploitation film, and they hired Renee, I guess, because of his previous association with Russ Myers and some of the stuff that he had done in in Europe. Uh, I hope I'm not misspeaking there, but uh, you know, <laughs> and so he he came in and he's directing this movie, but he wrote this political allegory, and it's it's it's. Uh, you know, had it just been about the blood and guts, you probably would. I don't know whether you'd know more or less about it today, but it sure it stood the test of time as a result. And, and it, it, it certainly has, and, and for that very reason. And if I'm not mistaken, I could be. Uh, I remember that the powers that be, the producers, weren't exactly thrilled with the film that they received because of that reason. That that it wasn't as bloody, it wasn't as exploitative because it was a film about ideas. So I I, I could be wrong, but I had heard that they weren't exactly you know, happy with what the, they got because they wanted something different. Now there were certain things. That, I mean, this is primarily for fans and stuff. But I mean, there, there were there were times when we hung out. There was a place in Burbank that we went out to dinner with. I thought the cast went out. Um, um, I know Tom and I were there, but it was either a party or something. Do you remember this in the middle of the shooting? No, uh, I was I was I was an old married man at that point. I had to go home to the to the missus, so I yeah. I was we went out around. and and I, I don't know. I mean, it was I I think the place is still there, but I can't get the name of it off the top of my head now. But I can I can remember being there with Tom, and I thought other cast members. I thought it was a Saturday. Maybe it was they took us out for dinner after shooting or something. Could be. Um, yeah. um, uh, but uh, the party, as I recall, you and I have had different, very, very memories of of where there were parties. I thought there was a party at, I think it was down the Beachcombers, like up off of McFadden or somewhere off of Hollywood Boulevard. There was this um, like Hawaiian bar. See, that that was it. Uh, if indeed. There was a party there. I I didn't attend it. Um, and then and then there was a party there. And then you remember a party at the Hilton in Beverly Hills, or off, off I the, I remember uh, if if, if, if my memory serves me correctly, we had our formal rap party at Trader Vic's, which is in okay. the Beverly Hilton complex. I remember that. So if there's anybody out there that knows what, <laughs> where we were, <laughs> what we did. It, uh, back in the seventies, let us know because, as as the saying goes, if you remember the seventies, you weren't there. And, um, and I'm pretty Jeffrey sure it was. I'm almost positive because uh, I remember my aunt Marge and Uncle Dick, who who been out here since the late fifties, loved Trader Vicks, and and that made an impression upon me. So I'm I'm almost positive that was where Vic it was the rap party. Yeah, yeah, well, and and, and uh, people chipped in and. Because Renee's a beer drinker, uh, chipped in and bought him a, a case of Heineken from his native country, and he looked at it and went, "Oh, uh, yeah, I I prefer Coors." You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeff, we're at that point where I've got to take a break here, and uh, so I'm going to take a break. We'll be right back. Uh, I am enjoying this uh, trip down memory lane, 
And uh, so uh, stick with me and uh, and let me tell everybody who's coming up. You're listening to Rex Sykes Movie Beat. The official web address is R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S dot com. All of these interviews are archived right there at the interviews blog at RexSykes.com. They're also available as podcasts from the iTunes store. When you go and listen to these, if you download them all to your phone or your favorite electronic device, you can take them with you wherever you go. There's over 285 hours of, of programming, filmmakers, professionals giving away uh, the farm with secrets, tips, suggestions for how you can advance your career, make and complete your projects, get them to market, and find your target audience, and hopefully profit by all of your efforts. And that is the goal. And all we ask of you in exchange is to share these websites, share these podcasts with anyone and everyone you know who's a filmmaker, and leave comments both during and after the show at the comment window right there at Blog Talk Radio, and rate and review the podcast. My upcoming guest. Um, and, and let me just say, we've had fabulous guests. Uh, it's 285 different shows. Um, we've had fabulous guests. And you're going to want to go back and listen to each and every one of them, I, I promise you. My next guest coming up is Cheeks. It's Brad Bell. He is the producer and star of Husbands, the series. Now, Jana Spenson uh, writes the series and produces it with, with Cheeks. And uh, Jeff Greenstein, who's also been on the show, uh, director, he's done Will and Grace Friends, he's a developing you know, writer for uh, all these different series, Par- Parenthood, Sex and the City, uh, and so many others, uh, is directing the series. And so you're going to want to listen to Cheeks talk about the web series as well, uh, especially now because web series are becoming uh, a much more viable form of entertainment on the Internet, and, and the production values of these things is also getting uh, very good, and the entertainment value as well. Patrick Breen will be joining us. He's got a web series, a whole way down. And uh, Willie Garson from uh, White Collar and from Sex and the City was on the show recently. So go back and listen to Willie. He's talking about the whole way down. Uh, Patrick is is a uh, partner with him in that web series, and he's going to be coming up on the 13th. Peter Marshall will return on the 15th with our director's series. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the director's series. The director's series is now – I. 17 or 18 parts. I mean, we, we, <laughs> there's a lot of shows. They're all an hour long. But what it, what it is, is from a director's perspective, what you need to do with the script and what you need to do with the actors and what you need to do with the camera in order to uh, pre-produce and produce your film. Uh, we may go into post-production, but for now, uh, we've been talking about analysis and breakdown of the script and the screenplay for uh, the director and bringing his vision t- of the film to the screen uh, or putting it up on the screen and then also working with actors in the same way. So you're going to want to listen to that.
Ah, can you believe it? I was cut off of my own show. And in doing so, it appears I also have lost Jeff. So uh, hopefully Jeff will call back in. And uh, I don't know what happened there, but uh, and there is Jeff. So uh, I don't know exactly when I was cut off, but I was going to say that uh, Laquanda Plant is the casting director of Atlanta, Georgia. We're going to talk with her. And uh, and so stay tuned to Rex X Movie Beat. Lots of great guests coming up. Oh, I see what happened. We had an entire power outage where I am. So it shut the phones off, shut the uh, fans off, shut everything off. All the clocks are blinking, and so that's what happened. Uh, leave it to uh, the world energy sources. I don't know. Jeff, how are you doing? You're back. I'm back. I'm well. So I got cut off in the middle of something and didn't know where, and then uh, I noticed that uh, I had to dial back in, and you, you were cut. Then were you uh, bumped, too? Did they, uh, they, I uh, just, you just heard chip. Your, your being cut off, and, and there was no sound at all, so I dialed back as well. Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad you did, because I was going to go, oh, my gosh, now what? So right. we're back. We're okay. back. So um, continue. Now, now, uh, I remember one time that Tom and I we were at Griffith Park. It was we had where I, uh, I think it's when I punch him when we're going to the car. Correct. That is that is uh, right after my death scene where everybody's running out of the school and that's where that scene picks up. And Tom and I were standing off of the area, like out behind a line of trees. And the shot was set up, and Renee was, they were far away, you know, 20 yards or more away, the camera. And um, I don't remember why we were standing there or what part of the scene, but I, I know that we were wired, you know, and we were on wireless mics. Right. And we were waiting a long, long time, and uh, I said probably something like, you know, I wish you would hurry up or whatever Tom's like, oh, this effing director. If you ever get <laughs> looked over, yeah, he, he doesn't know what he's doing. And, yeah. and see, yeah, something like that. We see Renee with his headset, like go, standing up and like taking his headset. We like we heard every <laughs> word we said. We're bitching about the director, and we're like, oh shoot, now we, now we're in trouble. But uh, Renee never said anything about it. He, he didn't reprimand us or anything. He just let it go, and and ultimately we shot the scene. And I and I, whenever Logan's on the show, I'm gonna I'm still gonna complain because I go Logan made made it look like I punched him in the balls. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it was, was like, yeah, it was a it was a low hit, Rex. Yes. It looked like it's just like I, I'm like he said at the last minute he goes, don't really hit me, you know. I just had this operation. I'm like, what? He, I said, I'm not gonna hit you. And he's like, but don't, don't, you know, because, you know, I, I have a problem. I'm like, okay, don't worry about it. You know, you know how to take a punch, right? Nobody choreographed it. They're just like, go ahead and do this. Right. I mean, nobody, nobody walked over and said, okay, swing and, and stop before you hit him. You know, no one said, you know, it was just, as I recall, you know, it was just left up to us to figure it out. Well, that's, and, that's, uh, that's what happens when you're doing independent films. I, I did a one scene in Forrest Gump opposite uh, – Robin Wright and Tom Hanks, and for right. the entire scene, it took about ten and a half hours to shoot. That's exactly what happened. Was I was uh, giving Robin a hard time. I was a, a, a drunk in the front row of the strip club, and for ten and a half hours, he would run down, take me, and throw me across four chairs. And before anything was done, it was rehearsed. Uh, I had it demonstrated, and and then I just had the health run out of me for 10 hours. So, uh, yeah, everything was set up. So that doesn't always happen with an independent film. 
So, well, let's talk a little bit about Forrest Gump then. <laughs> okay. And uh, and that experience. It was a great experience. Uh, I had the initial audition for Ellen Lewis, who was the casting director, and again, it was it was like a throwback to Renee. So I just want you to improvise. You're you're in the front row. You're drunk. You've got a you've got a stripper in front of you, and she's playing the the guitar. You don't want to see the guitar. You want to see what's behind the guitar. You want her to lower the guitar. So just go. So she rolled the tape, and I just I don't even remember what I said. I was just rambling and blah 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 blah, blah. and she laughed. And about a week later, I received a callback, and. Uh, I did exactly the same thing. This time, she videotaped me again, but this particular video was FedEx down to uh, South Carolina where the bulk of the film was shooting. And Bob Zemeckis, the director, saw it and booked me. And I remember I, I walked onto the set from my one day. It started at 8.30. I was in the makeup trailer. I was sitting next to Robin who was really sick. She had a cold. She had her hair up in curlers. She's like, Ugh. And you know, Tom walks in and says, oh, are you sick? She says, yeah, I am. He says, yeah, my kid, I just left him at home. He's sick. He's just sitting on the couch looking at cartoons going, whoa. So there had been this bug going through the cast. So we end up on the set. Uh, it was a strip club in Miami. Not Miami, Memphis. And we used the old coconut grove room at the now defunct Ambassador Hotel. Wow. And it was it looked like this cheesy strip club by the time the art director uh, was done with it. And uh, Zemeckis had Robin and I uh, stand opposite each other. We were both seated, actually. And he said, okay, all right. So let's see what you're each going to say, right? What are you going to say here, Jeffrey? Oh, I'm going to say da-da-da-da-da. Okay, Robin, what are you going to say? Da-da-da-da-da. Okay. Great. Now, at that point, Jeffrey, I want you to take your beer and I want you to throw it all over her. But aim for her knee because we don't want to be you know, redoing her makeup every time you do it. So that was the secret there. And, and it was so funny because then and only then did he say, because when that happens, Tom's going to run down the aisle because he's been watching this whole episode. And he's going to grab you and he's going to throw you across Four chairs to your right, and you're going to go sprawling on it. I went, really? <laughs> okay. So well, I, I, I said, can I speak to the stunt coordinator? He said, absolutely. So the stunt coordinator came over. His name was John, and he explained what was going to happen. And I said, can I can I see it uh, uh, performed for me? Can I have an example? He said, sure. So he brought in one of his stunt people, and you know, he was flung across the chairs. And I said, Okay. And he said, so, I mean, have you done stunt work? I said, I've, I've studied, you know, fighting and stage combat. I can take a fall. He said, great, okay. So they line up, and they're ready for the first scene, first take. Everything goes great. I go, hey, honey, I got something here for you. I got a dollar bill, and I'm rubbing it up on her, her shin. And she goes, you jerk. Shoves me back into my seat with her foot. That's the point where I pick up the beer and go, god damn it. And I throw it all over. At that point, Tom runs down, grabs me. But it's so funny because he just he sort of just touched me. I had to really make the fall on my own. Zemeckis cut. They didn't print it. So John comes down and goes, you know what? I just talked to Tom. He was really weak on that first take because he 
you know, he thought he was going to hurt you. And I told him, no, 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 this guy knows how to take a fall. So he said, I, I just want to warn you, Jeff, he's going to be throwing you like crazy on this next take. I said, okay. So they roll. He comes running down. He he shoved me so hard uh, uh, that he hooked his shot. In other words, when he let go of me, his hands were to the right. Instead of falling across the chairs, I fell back in one of them. It fell off the platform. There I am on my back in this chair. The scene continues. Once it's finished, Zemeckis goes, cut. Jeffrey, are you okay? In front of everybody, I'm laying there. I go, yeah, Bob, I'm fine, but I noticed you didn't stop filming. And everybody just <laughs> hurt, you know. It was, but it was just a great day. It was just a great day. But all from that one little audition uh, took us almost 11 hours, 10 and a half, almost 11 hours. It was a great, great shoot. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that because people don't uh, – I think a lot of people, if they're not inside the business, don't understand um, this whole uh, aspect of the acting career, and that is auditioning, you know, getting a call, going to the first, getting a call back, booking a job, and uh, and then subsequently working – you know, and you may work a day, you may work weeks, you be, you know, any number of things. But uh, can we talk a little bit about that? Uh, you know, what? Because uh, you started to, you know, when you talked about you went in and uh, you auditioned, and then you were called back. So share with us how how often this works, or how it works frequently. I mean, well, I think you have to remember first of all, it's a business. It's like Woody Allen once said, if it weren't a business, it would be called show, show. Um, and from the very beginning, you have to remember that. I tell young actors, it starts with the audition. Uh, if you have a scene and you, you're lucky enough to get the sides in time and you study it, make your choices but then remain open enough to take direction so you can change what you've done. Don't get so locked in uh, that you can't make an adjustment. That's the one thing that they look for is the flexibility that an actor can bring uh, to it and how well he or she takes direction. So that right off the bat is the first thing you have to remember. You make your choices. You have to. But if a director or a casting director says, no, I want you to make another choice, be open enough that you can do that without being too locked in. Um, and there are those people who do the same thing and go, how is that? <laughs> pardon me? There are those actors who come in and they say, we want you to change it, and or we want you to do this, and then they do it exactly the way they had just done it. And, Ex they don't, Ex they and don't that's, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. That That's somebody who who either can't or won't, and boom, that's that's a problem. Right. That's a problem. And um, it, and it, it, it continues. It, it's all about listening and taking direction, working with the director. I remember in Forrest Gump, at the beginning, I take a dollar bill and I rub it up against Robin's leg because I'm right in the front row when she's on stage. I rub it. And I remember him saying at one point, he said, Jeffrey, you know what? Instead of... Instead of jumping up like that and rubbing the dollar bill on her shin, can I see you sort of be like a snake? Can can you sort of slither? Can you make your body 
more lyrical and 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 snake-like and slither, and I did it. You know, I, I was listening to him, and I, I I tried to do what he wanted, and and I was successful at it. So you you have to constantly be listening for those little adjustments, even even on set when you're working. Absolutely, absolutely. So continue. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but now person gets the audition. What right. what typically happens? Like for you, what, you know, somebody calls you up and they go, "Hey Jeff, you got an audition on such and such a day at such and such a time." And now what happens? Well, I tr- I try to get the sides, mm-hmm. which in this day and age is not a problem. You can get them online or or wherever. Uh, I try to dress as closely as possible to the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they will more often than not give you examples of what they want you to wear. Uh-huh. Uh, and so you try and dress as closely to the character and, and what the casting director wants. And uh, again, I'll go over a scene and over a scene and over a scene and so that I'm really, really comfortable with it and I'm very familiar with it because you don't want to be stumbling and fumbling when you get in there. And again, I will I will look at a scene and say, okay, this is the character, this is what I want to do. And it gets back to what I was saying earlier. Uh, do that because that's what they're looking. They're looking for an actor who makes choices, but just be open in case they throw you a complete curve and go, no, we want you to do this so that, that you can throw it back at them and, and make the right. adjustment. So, and... Uh, What's interesting is that this was a very long, long day on Gump because it, as I said, does take place in a strip club in Memphis. And they had the smoke machines. There was so much coverage. And by that I mean people are listening and don't know what that means. There was a two-shot of me, a close-up of me. There was a close-up of Robin over the shoulder of Robin. There was a shot of Tom. There was a, a shot of the entire club with all the extras there from the front, from the back. All of these shots had to be set up. That's why it took 10 and a half, 11 hours. I, I didn't get out of that set, that location, until well, my call was 8.30. I didn't get out of there until 10.30, between 10.30 and 11 that night. For, for a scene that only lasts a few minutes. So th- right. that's something that people can remember when they see a finished film. It's... It, it, there's so much work that the audience doesn't see. That's very cool. That's very cool. So uh, how about this? You're working with uh, Robin and you're working with Tom. Any any trepidation about, you know, I've got to splash a beer on her, I've got to kind of slither up, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, in terms of respecting the actor's space, how do you how do you deal with that or, you know, well, first of all, they were, they were very nice to work with. They're very professional. I mean, Tom is just a total mensch. Uh, again, what what Bob Zemeckis, the director, had told me is make sure when you, you aim your beer, you aim it at her leg, at her knee. We can always clean her leg up. We can't clean her up between takes and do her makeup all over. So that, that was a technical uh, piece of direction that, of course, the audience will never pick up on. Uh, all they see is me throwing beer at her, but it was just a simple question of, of uh, using the proper technique. What's, what's very interesting is, and I, I had meant uh, 
to tell you this. I had started off by saying that Robin had a very bad cold that day. She did. She was you know, downing the, the DayQuil. So we had been on the set for hours. This is around 3, 3.30 in the afternoon. And she has her robe on between shots. She was working mostly nude with a G-string. So she's huddled in this bathrobe, and she's starting it's to fade. terrible working conditions that you I, I know, I know, I know. I mean, the motivation was right there in front of me. Um, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. But about 3.30 in the afternoon, she was really not feeling well. And what was really uh, dragging her down was that smoke. The no, smoke from the keg. She was. She had been breathing this since eight thirty that morning. So she, she just looked at me and just shook her head and just sort of, you know, gritted her teeth and went, ugh, you know. So to give you an idea how how loose this set was, how much fun it was, I knew she was tightening up on me and she was not happy and whatnot. So we were between takes. So I just got up on stage in front of her and I just did the Ed Sullivan. I went right here, right here on our show. Robin Wright, totally naked. Let's really, really hear it for her. And she just lost it. She started laughing, which totally you know, broke the spell, which is what I wanted. I wanted her to you know, continue. So it was just a lot of fun. Oh, that's very cool. That's very cool. Well, the reason I asked you about working with it is I had a film where I was supposed to grab this woman. And uh, I was very, like, you know kind of bashful about the whole thing. I mean, I, you know, as an actor, I didn't want to come off as a lech either. You know, I mean, my whole, like my own internal dialogue was, you know, how do I be respectful while I do this? Anyway, I did it. And she said to me, she said, I can't tell you how much I appreciate how you're treating me. And I go, well, what do you mean? She goes, well, the actor in yesterday's scene or the day before, he said, look at all the bruises I got from this guy. You know, it was oh. like he just, he like lost control and, you know, and, and, and went to town on her. And she's like, he didn't know how to act, you know. He he like did it kind of thing, you know. And I was like, oh well, no worries. And she was, and I and I, but I always remembered that because she was like, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the fact that you're not, you know, hurting me while you're doing this. And uh, well, see, right from the beginning, that meant that you were a pro, and the other actor wasn't, because that's that's pretty much rule one. You don't really <laughs> you do don't really do it. What you're supposed to do, do yes, right. exactly, well, exactly. So cool. yeah, that's a very that's a very good uh, example. I'm glad you brought that up because it's all it's all rehearsed and it and it should not put any actor in danger no matter how violent the scene is. Oh, uh, very very good very good point. Um so Jeffrey, we got about 10 minutes left at the very outside of our conversation and uh, okay. and I'm enjoying this. This is this is uh uh, it's one. It's good to talk to you. And two, I, and I should tell the listeners that that when we had our veranda talk, I was so impressed with your command of film and, and film knowledge and and film people. You know, I mean, um, you've forgotten more than I could ever know or remember. I'm sure. So uh, it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. We, we did have a good time. We we got to do it again in person as well. Absolutely. But, um, but uh, is there anything else from? from Massacre that you recall that stands out. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. And it was one of the early scenes. I can't remember whether I did the initial rope climbing where they flicked the knife out. Oh, right. Uh, or whether I did this other scene first. The, the scene that I'm thinking of was in the shower. 
I come out of the shower and I'm wearing a towel. And the three guys go, hey, and they start pushing me. And then they take their towels and they start snapping me with them and just brutally hitting me to the point where I break down in tears and I run off camera. There was a, a sound glitch. We had to stop. Right after we'd done it, it was just toward the end of the scene and we had to do it again. So while we were waiting to go again, I turned to Renee and I said, you know what would be absolutely the, the, the height of, of humiliation, totally degrading to Oscar, my character, is to have, in addition to having the bullies hit me with their towels, if they ripped my towel off and started beating me with my very own towel. Well, I'm totally in the buff. And he thought about that, and he said, that's great. Oh, that's a great idea. And then he stopped. He went, no, see, I cannot do that, Jeffrey. I cannot do that. It's, it's, you, you have a double standard in, in your country here when it comes to nudity. You can show women uh, frontal nudity, but not men. I can't do that. He said, if I was shooting this in Amsterdam, where I'm from, great idea. We'd do it right now. We cannot do it. But he, he loved the idea. <laughs> so I just thought of that. I mean, it, it, it would have been... Uh, uh, really humiliating. It would have been great for the scene and great for the character, but he he couldn't do it. Well, in retrospect, he could have done it without showing the nudity. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I suppose I mean, it wouldn't be as profound. But I mean, you know, he, he, they could have they could have shot around it. Actually, they could have. I mean, they could have whipped the towel off, and, and I could be you know with my back, yeah, or hand covering or something, or you know, or running off, you know. Uh, in a way that everyone would know what happened, but wouldn't but would exactly. But uh, uh, you know that, that double standard surely does exist. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's interesting. Any film now that receives an NC-17 rating, which obviously studios want to avoid because of the lack of business, only a certain section of of the public can see it. But it still rings true today, what Renee said. Uh, an NC-17 film means male frontal nudity, pure and simple. Well, I, I, I've seen films with, you know, with people like uh, 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 Juliana Moore and Robert Altman's film, Shortcuts, you know, full frontal nudity. That's fine. It gets an R rating. But if it's, if it's an actor, a man, forget it. perfect example is Shame with Michael Fassbender. That right. received an NC-17 rating purely because of his frontal nudity. So that's that's really uh, true, what Renee said over 35 years ago. Uh, well, it certainly is, and it certainly is, you know, um, I have always said, you know, and listeners may, may or may not like this, um, a naked man running down the street, or a naked woman running down the street, she gets applauded, he gets shot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in our country. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. In a nutshell, that's absolutely true. That's really true. So, you know, and, and I don't know if it's because uh, men, uh, you know, uh, control everything and, and we've got all of our weird, you know, issues with men and, and the homosexual thing and the naked thing, if that's why it is, or, you know, we're just throw back to 
the Puritan, Puritan era and the Victorian age. It, 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 it really is. We, 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 have, we have a different culture in this country. We have a different standard. I mean, if you look at some of the, the, the films from France in the 50s, there is nudity. In the oh, early true. 60s, there's nudity. So, yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a cultural uh, uh, difference. Well, it is it is an interesting thing, and in this day and age, I mean, I remember in the seventies, you know, we go to a PG movie or we could go to an R movie. We wanted to go to the R movie because it meant that there would, yes, there would be nudity in it, there would be action in it, there would be blood and guts in it, there would be swearing in it, and all that kind of stuff. Now you go to an R movie, it's because they're smoking. Yes. You know, some kids are smoking or something like that. It gets an R rating, and nobody wants an R rating or an NC three NC and NC seventeen rating. Because now PG-13, they can do almost everything that they could do in an R movie when we were growing up. Exactly, exactly. And, you, 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 yeah, you see the the, uh, the difference how things have, have become more lax so that the ratings are different. They just are. Yep, you've got that. You've got PG and G and, and PG-13, which is the equivalent of a soft R probably at the time when we were there. But and and nobody wants to go beyond the PG thirteen because it means loss of revenue, you know, fewer seats in the theater because you can't market to the children. I mean, it's just it's an amazing world how how uh, that has changed. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. What was was Massacre rated R? Yes, it was. See, I mean, yes, that's the, the thing that now would probably be rated PG thirteen. I don't I don't know for sure, but um, the violence. Well, that, that's, that's a good question. I really don't know uh, what the answer would be there. I mean, I know that there's language in it. There's some uh, nudity in it. There's, uh, you know, some violence in it. The violence is not gratuitous gore or or extra blood, as you pointed out. You know, I, I think what would probably keep it from being PG-13 would be the nudity, if anything. I don't think the violence would be an issue. It'd be there are films today that that just outdo it. So what was 20, Kramer versus Kramer rated? Pardon me. Oh, what Kramer Kramer? Kramer? Wasn't that a PG-13? Um, I'd have to check. It, it, it was PG or, 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 or R. I'm not sure. There was language in it, but I, I don't know. Well, right there was language, it. but there was also the nude shot where she comes out of the, the bedroom. Girlfriend. And, yeah, and, the girlfriend. Yeah, the girlfriend. And the, right. and the young kid is standing there, you know. But uh, anyway. Uh, uh, probably, probably for uh, uh, 1979, when that film was released, it would have probably been R. Yes, good point, excellent point. Now let me just check and see where we are time-wise. We've got um, just about four minutes left. So um, uh, let me ask you just in closing, and, we'll, and let me tell the uh, listeners that I want to have you back. We'll talk about other things, about other films, and and, uh, and you're in General Hospital and, and Port Charles. And, and oh, fun, some Marvin, fun, fun stories there, yes. <laughs> that, that, that Was Marvin Page still casting those? or was No, that Marvin? was uh, – no, that he had been uh, – he had been out. I, I worked for Marvin years ago uh, in the 80s on General Hospital, but by the time I worked uh, in the late 90s to 2002, no, he had been gone. So, Gretchen, uh, Gretchen, Gretchen Hillier was the uh, casting director that I worked with. Oh, very cool, very cool. So we'll talk more about other films and other and other things. But uh, in the remaining moments, any other uh, massacre thing or anything you want to discuss before we leave? today? Um, not right offhand. By the way, I just let me double check and, and, and say it was Gwen Hillier, the casting director. I don't want 
<laughs> I don't want the wrong name going on. So, uh, and she's still with General Hospital. Um, uh, as far as another topic, just trying to think what we could cover. Anything here. from our reunion or anything about Massacre, you know, uh, to to leave the fans with that. Um... Trying to think here. Not offhand. I'm, I'm sure the minute the show ends, I'll think of something. But but offhand right now, no. Well, I found I did find a, the script. I mean, I had a lot of flood damage in Los Angeles, both in my apartments and my and and also when I lived at the, I lived at Columbia Studios. I mean, I've lost. I've had flood damage in Wisconsin. There's this water theme in me. There, most of my possessions and belongings get get wow. washed away. So I've lost like all. I think all call sheets and anything, any memorabilia, any paychecks or stubs or photographs or anything of me. But I did find a script from Massacre that I think we all signed. Oh, wow, that would be so great. You know, and I've got to go find out where that was. I just remember seeing it and trying to make out signatures. You know, go, who was this or who was that? But one of these days, if I could find it out, if nothing else, maybe I can take a picture of the front of it and put it online with trying to decipher who everyone was. Oh, that would be great. Like the, I do. The I do remember this. I do remember this. I remember that. I remember we were at Cabrini, and it was raining, and the extras were like sitting under a tree or something in the rain. And I went out and sat with these girls because I was like, I was, I was like, all the actors. We were underneath this awning or something, and uh, not awning, but part of the building. But they they literally had the extras eating outside, like under trees or something. Oh. And and I thought that that was so class, you know, obviously, you know, a, a class faux pas. Oh, oh and, and let me t- let me tell you, it, that is rampant in our business. I did an episode of I forget what it was, whether it was Quincy or, or one of those episodes from from the eighties. I was on the set, the soundstage first. I was early, and they had all of our principal chairs, canvas chairs in one room. I was the only one there. So some of the extras were sitting in the other room. So I picked up my canvas chair and I went over and I sat and I was talking to them, right? Right? Mm-hmm. And this guy walks up and says, uh, uh pardon me, you can't be sitting in that chair. Where did you find that? You just you know, you put it back where you found it. I said, Sir, I'm a, I'm a I'm a principal. I just got it from where I was supposed to be sitting. And he went, Oh, I'm I'm sorry. Because I was sitting, I was sitting with the lowly extras. You see, there's a real class structure that people don't know about. It is, but I also tell people if you're lucky enough to be an extra. I mean, I, I'm I won't get hey. into the politics of SAG and SAG and after and SAG and all the different kinds of stuff. But I dated a girl who who was a regular extra on TV shows. She ended up buying racehorses and buying a ranch. Oh. God, from the God money she you. made God, Yeah, God love you. If if that's what you pursue, I have nothing but respect for you because we're all artists. We're all in the same business. And uh, uh, that's a very tough job. So I, I, I tip my hat to her. Yeah, and I, you know, no, and I, and I understood you to say that too. I'm just saying right. that, that, and that's very different than independent, uh, low budget features where, you know, an extra might get twenty dollars a day versus the, the kind of money that they could make on a TV series as a union extra back in the seventies. 
Yeah. Um, head and shoulders difference. Jeffrey, this has been absolutely wonderful talking with you and catching up with you and Likewise. sharing uh, Massacre and Forrest Gump and other stories uh, with listeners. I really do appreciate it. Um, I hope to be back in L.A. soon so that we can sit down again and, and talk in person. But, uh, you know, the good thing about Facebook and about phones and things is that Jeff and I can stay in touch, and I, and I, and I do enjoy doing that. So to all the listeners, know that Jeff will be back. And I appreciate you being here today. My pleasure, Rex. Let's do it again. All right, we will. All right, have a great day. Talk to you a little bit, and uh, and uh, enjoy. Thank you. Bye bye. Right, bye bye. Mr. Jeffrey Winner, Oscar from Massacre at Central High, and as you heard uh, from Forrest Gump and, and Quincy and other shows, and, and, and we're going to get back and talk to him more about that at another time. Uh, for you, my listeners, I appreciate you tuning in and joining us and listening. Please do continue to share the show. Go back and listen to all these other archive shows that we have. And if you're just tuning in or joining us now, then go back and listen to the start of the show. But uh, all of these are available as podcasts. They're all available at uh, the interviews blog at rexsykes.com. Please do leave comments in the uh, at the Blog Talk radio player or when you uh, get the podcast, rate and review the shows. That always helps us out. When you share this, you help other filmmakers discover the show where we're giving secrets, tips, suggestions, how-tos, what to do, what not to do, and advice to filmmakers and actors, directors and writers, and all those people so you can advance your career. Thanks so much for being here. You can become a friend of Rex Ike's Movie Beat on Facebook by clicking the Like button on the Facebook page. That's the like button at Rex Sykes Movie Beat Friends. Jeffrey Winter, I'm sorry, don't make me sure. It's Jeffrey Winter, Winner, W-I-N-N-E-R. I can't believe I've said it wrong twice. He's, it's Jeffrey Winner, W-I-N-N-E-R, has a, has a Facebook page, so you can look him up on Facebook. And uh, you can also follow me at Twitter at Rex Sykes Movie B-T. That's Rex Sykes Movie B-T. That last word is abbreviated, and sure hope you will. All right, everybody. Um, if you have any uh, feedback, any suggestions, any uh, questions for upcoming guests, um, you know of anything that you want to share with me, please don't hesitate to contact me by email through the website. Go to the contact page and just hit the button there and it will get to me. So uh, please keep that in mind. And do keep in mind uh, the many fabulous guests we have coming up that I've listed. So, all right, everybody, have a fabulous day. Make your movies, complete your project, and until we meet the next time... That's a wrap.